Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy Church. If I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor of Sending here at Mercy Church. Uh, At all three of our campuses, we have something really incredible to celebrate this morning. This is Julia Brodsky, and we are going to commission her this Sunday as a missionary to Botswana, Africa which is amazing. Now listen, Julia, she's been a member of Mercy Church for a long time. She has gone through Mercy College. She has gone through quite a bit of our missionary preparation process. And in a few weeks, she's gonna be moving to Botswana to take the gospel to people who need it. And we, what we want to do, like, like Antioch, like, like the church in Antioch, we want to send her out to be her sending church here this morning. And what we want to do right now is I wanna pray a prayer of commissioning over her. But before I do that, I wanna encourage you something with, with something really quickly. Julia, your job as you go, first and foremost, is to remember that you are a daughter of the King. Your job is not to crush it for Jesus. Jesus tells us that if we abide in Him, then we will bear much fruit. But apart from Him, we can do nothing. So while you're overseas, my sister, I pray that your first aim will be to love Jesus more. And he will, he will worry about all of the other stuff. So Mercy Church, one of the things that the church at Antioch did, the very first church is they laid hands on Paul and Barnabas as they sent them out. So at all of our campuses, if you would just extend your hand out, believing on God on her behalf, and then I wanna pray over you. Julia, we, or Julia, we're just, we're so excited. Julia, I want to just, before we pray, just for a moment, just again, remind you that God is good. Every need that you have, he is gonna supply you. So church, pray with me. Lord, we thank you for Julia. We thank you that she has put her yes on the table. She has said yes to taking her next step in following Jesus. She has said yes to making disciples of all nations. And Lord, we pray that you bless her. God, we pray that you will be with her, that you will conform her more into your image. And God, I'm sure there will be days where she, as she gets there, she'll say to herself, what in the world did I just do? And God, in those moments, I pray that you would meet her and you would remind her that she is a daughter of the King. All she needs to do is to abide and then to go and be faithful. So Lord, I pray that faithfulness would be her aim. And God, that she would trust you with the results of making disciples. So Lord, we commissioned Julia this morning, giving her into your hands because we know that you love her. And God, as her sending church, Lord, we commit 
all the members of this body to pray for her. And as needs arise, to meet her needs. God, we love Julia. And we thank you for her life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we give Julia a hand one more time? Man, thank you. Praise God, y'all. Praise God. Um, what a morning here, y'all. Yeah, I want to say welcome if you're new to Mercy Church. Listen, this is what we're all about. It's calling people to take their next steps and following Jesus, whatever that next step might be, whether it's Julia and sending her off to Botswana, or maybe it's like what many of you did. I want to take a moment and thank um, so many of you. We changed all of our service times several uh, weeks ago, and y'all, by adding those service times, we have created a lot more space uh, which is a really good thing. Uh, we were like wall to wall um, at the time. We sort of created some more space. We have seen a record number of first-time guests and a record attendance this fall. But uh, what I love is that it still felt like uh, familial around here, which is a really good thing. Now, by creating space, if you see an empty chair next to you, what that means, that's an opportunity for you to pray that the Lord would fill that with someone who's far from God, but close to one of us, and they can hear the gospel. Uh, in fact, it's one of the reasons we're doing this series that we're doing, uh, that we're calling It's Hard to Believe. Uh, the idea behind this series is that there's just some big questions and issues that people have when it comes to Christianity. Um, and when they're investigating, they're like, man, I don't know, this is what makes it hard to believe. And you've had those conversations and I've had those conversations. And so we're addressing a lot of those topics. And by the way, it's not just people that aren't Christians that have these questions. We all do as well, right? These are hurdles for us a lot of times and we want to be equipped. Well, today is our final sermon in this hard to believe series. And we're going to be talking about gender dysphoria and the transgender movement. And if your response to that is, uh, whoa, bro, I'm new to your church. I was not expecting a sermon on that. Well, I was never expecting to preach a sermon on this, okay? Uh, this is in many ways new for me too. Uh, this was not covered in seminary. Uh, maybe this will help explain why we're, um, why we're doing this. Okay, look, if you have been around with us for a little while, you remember that we were walking through, and this is pretty commonplace for mercy if you're new, just walking through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Typically, we just take a book of the Bible, work our way through it, all right? Well, we stopped at the end of chapter three very intentionally because the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about identity, who you are in Christ, who we are in Christ. In fact, there's very few commands in the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's just, this is who you are, all right? Well, what we did was we took that and we stopped right there at the end of chapter three and we said, okay, chapters four through six are gonna be all about how you live. It's gonna talk a lot about relationships, stuff like that, how do you walk in who you are? And we paused right there in the middle and said, okay, for six weeks, let's talk about what it means to live out our identity in some of the, basically in the cultural moment that we are in. And so that's why we're talking about the things that we are talking about here. We're talking about kind of the three loudest issues of our day, uh, authorities, what we spent the first two weeks on, suffering the second two weeks, and sexuality these last two weeks. Uh, so then, yeah, just taking basically a timeless biblical identity and applying it to present day realities. And I, I know y'all, a very small percentage of our population experience what we're talking about today, experience gender dysphoria. But while it's a very small percentage that experience it, all of us are being confronted with the ideology. So we need to talk about it. And if that makes you uncomfortable, a little bit, I'm glad, okay? Church is not here just to make you comfortable. It's to conform you to the image of Christ, to grow you up in your walk with Jesus. And that usually means getting uncomfortable. 
but also it's going to be okay. We're going to be in Ephesians 4 next week. All right, so just hang in there. Now, as we're talking about gender dysphoria and the transgender movement, I need to say something right out of the gate. Listen to me. As a church, we are not here to shame anyone. I said this last week. I'll say it again. We do not see ourselves as good people trying to tell bad people how to behave rightly. We see ourselves as redeemed people trying to tell all people about the powerful love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's what we're here for. Our present day, we Christians, we do need to be prepared, or we're doing this series, be prepared to give a defense for why we believe what we believe. But giving a defense is very different than being defensive. And some in the Christian world are harshly defensive, specifically on this. Others avoid it altogether, and some accept what the world says. Well, we're clearly not avoiding it. We're all feeling uncomfortable right now, not avoiding it today. We're not out to be defensive, nor is the world our authority for what is true. We're out to explain God's good way in a world confused and broken by the effect of sin. Another thing I need to say, we're talking today about an ideology. You're kind of talking about two things today. One is an ideology that needs to be defended against, but we're also talking about people who need to be loved and they need to be loved by God's people. There are people that are made in love by God. And I promise you, basically all people that are experiencing gender dysphoria, they're not out to be, have no desire to be political poster children. What you ask just about any, they'll say, I just want to be happy. They're trying to cope with feelings that are usually bringing them great distress. Some examples, real life examples. Maybe you are the teenager who feels out of place because you don't fit in with the stereotypes connected to your gender. You like things that girls are supposed to like, or you like things that boys are supposed to like, and things didn't really change for you when you hit puberty like they did for other boys and girls, and maybe now you feel like an outcast. You feel different, and you want to fit in. All of us want to fit in, and you're feeling that. But now you're hearing on social media or in school that people who feel like you feel, who are an outcast like you, are being celebrated and brought in because they are changing their identity and they're being celebrated for it. And you're thinking, hey, maybe that's a way for me to go from outcast to accepted. Maybe it's not you. Maybe you have a friend that's told you he or she is transitioning. Maybe it's a relative and has asked you that you use a different name when addressing them. Maybe it's gotten pretty intense. They said, if you don't, you're dead naming me, which is to a term created to manipulate and intimidate you into using their former name. And you're trying to figure out what's my, what's my Christian response in this moment. Maybe you're a parent and you're trying to help your young child just navigate this space, whether it's because of an unexpected cartoon character or something said, or even taught at a school. And all this is a little overwhelming. Here's what I know. I know there's confusion, heightened emotion, and a lot of pain in this area. So I want to try and do my best to lovingly walk you through God's word. I'm praying that you find hope. Here's my outline. Much like last week, I want to try and show you what God's word says, and we're going to contrast it against what the world says. Last week, we set that up. There's a word in the world, and we're going back to that today. We're going to walk through scripture starting all the way back in Genesis 1, and hopefully my goal by the end of this is that we will have built a loving, hope-filled theology of gender. That's what we're going to do today. I will say, if you are a middle or high school student or parent, we are having a student-parent roundtable on Thursday night here at our Providence Road campus on gender and sexuality. I'm going to be leading that alongside of Dawn Demas, one of our counselors at Riverside Counseling Group. Uh, and the idea there is to really help equip you. Dawn and I have talked through what we're going to be presenting, and I'm really 
Uh, I'm excited about it because I think it really will do a good work of equipping you for the conversations that you're already having, and you can bring your questions there. Um, All parents, let me say, it is never too soon to start talking about gender with your kids. God's good gift of gender should be celebrated as early as they can understand it because it is being challenged that early, okay? So with that aside, let's get into the Bible. We'll start over in Genesis chapter one, and we'll try and work on building a theology of gender. We start in Genesis 1, 27, and I wanna say, I think what might happen today if you're a Christian that's been around the Bible for a bit is I'm gonna bring up some passages that might be familiar, and my hope is the Holy Spirit will shed some fresh light on it for how it applies to a new conversation. That's what we do as the church. We take God's timeless truths and apply them to the moment right? That's what we're trying to do today. So Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. Whenever you see repetition, that's emphasis. And he created them male and female. Here's what I think is awesome. So much about what you need to know about who you are is right on the first page of scripture. Isn't that kind of the Lord for all of you who never finish books that you start? Like God went ahead, first page, said, I'm going to give you the good stuff, okay? It's the Bible. All of it is good. I'm just saying, some of you are like that, okay? Um, Listen, God intentionally created you. It was very intentional. The first thing he says is it was in his image, which means somehow you and I carry the reflection of God around with us, which is why we are so big as a church on everybody deserving dignity, right? Because God made everyone and he put his likeness onto them. You understand the power of that, the self-worth in that, that you carry with you right now, the image of God, almighty God. In fact, Genesis two says, God breathed life into mankind. You as a being, you are both physical and spiritual made by God, who is also himself spiritual that came to earth in a physical human form. He spends all of Genesis 2 relaying the story of how beautiful these two genders that he creates reflect the image of God as they cooperate together. Listen, here's my point in saying that. This is our first point in our theology of gender. God designed gender and says it's good. It's good. And, and let me contrast that against the world. The word, God says it's good. Male and female, it's good. The world offers you, on the other hand, no real inherent self-value. If you are merely a collection of molecules, merely a physical being, you have no inherent worth, no value. That's super important to remember because whether it's just someone or whether it's being broadcast loudly, someone says, you are valuable. It's worth asking the question, why? What makes me valuable? Because otherwise that's just empty words. Right here is a great time for me to start I mean, I'm going to go ahead and introduce some definitions that we'll use throughout the rest of our day. Just let's get all on the same page here. I, I think four of them. The first is sex. In this discussion, one's sex is identified as male or female based on their chromosomes, internal reproductive anatomy, and external genitalia. That's what makes up one's sex. Your sex, listen to me, is not assigned to you. God created you male or female. Nobody assigns you your sex when you are born. That's very important. Sex is not assigned by your parents or a doctor. They identify the sex that God gave you. Now, what the world is attempting over the past 10 to 15 years is separating one's gender from one's identified sex. I watched an elementary ed video on this just this week. 
Gender is being defined as a person's self-perception of whether they are male or female, how one feels. This is important because this is a pillar idea in our modern day transgender movement and in this ideology. One's gender is not what you were identified as at birth, but instead how you identify now. A couple more terms, intersex. This is where one's biological sex is not clearly identifiable at birth. This represents 0.02% of the population. It's a real condition and one I believe God provides powerful hope for that we're going to talk about today. That's different from gender dysphoria. This is the label coined in 2013 to describe the experience of feeling like you're just a different gender than the sex you were identified as at birth. Someone who experiences this dysphoria is now given the label transgender. Many in this movement have gone even further to say there actually should be a spectrum of genders and we should ultimately be working towards a genderless society. Those are our terms. Now, right here, what's really, honestly, it's ironic is that if you separate, as the ideology would have you do, if you separate gender from biological sex, you are left without a real definition of what a man or woman is. And you struggle to make sense of gender. And really, this is what, really all you have left are stereotypes. I want to resource you as well as I can um, today. There are a couple of books that were really helpful to me. One is called Love Thy Body. It's by Nancy Piercy. Um, It is a great full-fledged treatment on this. It's several hundred pages. There's another one by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's called The Secular Creed. She has a chapter on this subject. The whole book is like 60 pages, okay? So you do what you want to do, all right, with that. But... Rebecca, in her book, she says, uh, if we strip away creator God, we have no grounding left for what a human is. So all we have to define a girl, for example, are stereotypes. So in 2015, when Bruce Jenner becomes Caitlyn Jenner and goes on the cover of Time magazine, dressed in provocative women's clothes and women's makeup, man, progressive, radical progressive feminists, not associating themselves with the church at all, really pushed back against this. Kara Dansky was one of those editorialists who said he undid in one photo what uh, years worth of work by the feminist movement because he reduced being a woman back to stereotypes. Because Caitlyn Jenner is biologically male, so the only thing communicating he is female is lipstick, long hair, and clothing. So here, catch the irony. (laughs) Transgender activists and male chauvinists from the 1950s are saying the same thing. Transgender activists say, if you like those things, you must be a girl. 1950s male chauvinist says, if you are a girl, you must like those things. So parents, it caught up in this whirlwind, get concerned with their little boys liking dance classes or little girls liking wrestling and wondering now, is my child transgender? And this is where we need to remember, there's a difference between gender and gender stereotypes. Gender is fixed. And stereotypes always change. In fact, I was, um, I was doing some research this week, and one of the things that I was reading was like a 1920 women's home magazine, okay? So this is where my research took me this week. Um, but one of the things I was saying was like the way women, women should avoid wearing the color pink because pink is a masculine color. Instead, women should wear the color blue because that is a more feminine color. Well, you see how that, that's a stereotype, and stereotypes don't last. They're always changing. You go all the way back to the Bible, and it's said in the Bible that men greet one another with a holy kiss. 
none of you better, don't come to me in the lobby with that anywhere, all right? None of you guys. There's one who greets me with a holy kiss. She wears a ring that I gave her, and the rest of you stay back, right? Different day. You got women in scripture who are business owners, prophets, warriors who kill kings. We're going to need deeper, stronger definitions of gender than the stereotypes the world can offer. If you're a man who likes cooking and theater and fashion, praise God. Look, y'all, I spent most of my sabbatical trying to master baking a rustic French tart, okay? That's so, praise God for you if you're good at cooking. I ended up being a failure. I could not get that thing no matter how hard I tried, but praise God. If you're a woman who likes sports, action movies, and a medium rare steak, you are not non-binary. You are awesome, okay? That's what you are, all right? That's right. Well, this is the deal. We're not gonna be beholden to stereotypes, beholden to stereotypes. That's the first part of our theology. God created men and women, two genders, and said they're good. But that doesn't mean they stayed good. Let me explain in Genesis 3. Sin came into the world and it corrupted everything. So here's the deal. The unity that you and I should experience between our mind and our body, we don't experience. Romans 8 says all of creation groans, all of creation all of us to some degree or another. You don't think you're the only one. Or maybe there's some comfort in you're not the only one that experiences a disconnect between mind and body. All of us to some degree do. Creation groans as we await our adoption into glory where our bodies will be redeemed. But for now, we have this problem where our body, which scripture calls our flesh, actually wages war against the mind. See, the next point in our theology of gender is that sin has disordered both the mind and body. And I need you to hear this because there actually is a great deal of common ground for Christians and the transgender ideology right here. Both express the same struggle. Transgender movement says there's a disconnect between what I experience in my mind and my physical body. In fact, it's a war and it's causing me great distress. It's amazing to me. God knew this age would come back when he put the Bible together and put his word right here for you right now. It's continued relevancy for all peoples of all times is one of the reasons why I believe it's divinely inspired. A war between mind and body? The Apostle Paul talks about that in Romans 7. In my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. It's What's my body doing? My body's waging war against my mind. That's the effect of sin. It disorders the mind and body. It disunifies the mind and body. So if you are experiencing a disconnect between mind and body, I want you to know the people who understand that kind of battle are Christians. We don't all experience it the same way, I promise you. But we all do experience it in some way. And God is telling us why, because sin has disordered the mind and the body. Yeah, I love this because it, once again, if you feel like, man, this is just something off in the corner and the church has nothing for me because I can't, I can't be here because the church doesn't understand me. I was like, I, I'm not going to say the church has got it all right. Man, have we messed up so many times, but I am telling you that God sees you. I am telling you that we all experience a disconnect between mind and body and the way things are supposed to be. You're not alone there. In fact, Paul says, 
what a wretched man I am. This experience between mind and body, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Every Christian has experienced some version of the things I do are not the things I want to do. There's a war between mind and body, and I need help. And this is the cry of, again, let's take it out of the ideology and into the person. Most people are just saying, if they're experiencing gender dysphoria, I just need help. I just want help. Who will help me? And the great announcement of scripture is Romans 7, 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The announcement of the gospel is that Christ came and listen, he came in human form to save us from sin and to restore humanity to its pre-sin, peaceful glory God created us for. Now, for now, this side of eternity, sin remains here on earth and we experience our brokenness still. But we do find victory over sin. And through the help of the Holy Spirit, we're able to experience a restoration of the mind and body, not in full, but in part and in a beautiful way. And this is big because, listen, I'm going to tell you, you are a physical and spiritual being. You are both. At the end of all days, (laughs) we are not going to be with God as like bodiless souls floating around heaven on the clouds. That's not it, y'all. We are going to be glorified, redeemed bodies. God cares about all of you. He does not see, as Plato would say, your, your body's not a cage that you are trapped in. He gave it to you. To be a human is to be an embodied person. And the way I know he cares is that when he came to earth, he came as fully God and fully man. And so he didn't have to do it. But that's the way he came. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And when he resurrected, he resurrected how? Bodily, in human form, not just spiritually. And the Bible says he's the first to resurrect, not the only. One day we will experience fully redeemed bodies. And for now we wait. I was, um, I was talking with the, our eight o'clock service here at Providence Road, which is kind of like a sermon laboratory space, okay? And I was talking with them about, um, about this. I gave them this illustration. They found it helpful. Um, I was reading a Christian philosopher this week who said, the way we need to think about our humanity now as Christians, this side of eternity. He said, the way the world thinks about our humanity is like we are a, um, a Lego kit, right? So you got, if you're just your physical makeup, you're like a Lego kit, which means you're a bunch of assembled parts. And if you don't like the parts as they are, you take off a part and put on a different part, go find different parts to create the thing that you think will be best. The problem, as I'll show you in a minute, the world's experience is that that is extremely painful and does not wind up in happiness. But the Christian view instead should be, we should see our treatment of our bodies and our stewardship of our bodies as like an art restoration project. It's like sin has affected us. It has marred us, stained us. But we who are Christians should get to know the original artist really well, because that's what you do in an art restoration project. You get to know the original artist really well and what his intent was, and slowly but surely over time, again, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we seek to live out a, a restored version of the original design, and we'll never get it in full, but we can continue to restore it. And one day, man, one day we will live fully restored. In fact, y'all, this is Revelation 21. I will never get tired. I have just flag in the ground kind of thing. I'm going to keep sharing this verse with you. We're going to talk about heaven and the hope of heaven enough. 
Revelation 21, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, with us, embodied souls. He will live with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And then hear this. Hear this for those of you that have cried specifically over this. Maybe it's over what you're experiencing. Maybe it's over what a loved one's experiencing. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that's not, that is not empty hallmark sentiment. That is deep, profound hope. Wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. I'm restoring, making new. Next point in our theology of gender, Christ offers forever redemption to my mind and body. The world says your body is meaningless. Just a cage your true self is trapped in. By the way, guys, I want you to catch how ironic that is, how contradictory that is. The same world says we can only trust the physical sciences and we can't go beyond the physical sciences to find meaning. Now, I love the physical sciences because they reveal the beauty of our creator the more we go into them, right? I love them. But our world has said, no, 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 no. You can't go beyond the physical sciences. That same world refuses to allow room for God or the spiritual or something you cannot see or test until it comes to personhood. And here lately, it's been forced to contradict itself to go against the limits of physical science. God, on the other hand, says all of you matters. And he's always said that. You were created with body and spirit. You can't separate them, but you can experience healing in Christ. And how you experience healing is another place where the word and the world simply diverge and tell you two different things. The world says if your body, listen, if your body is one way and your mind is another, the world says, watch, you should conform your body to your mind. So if your mind says you are male, but your body says you're biologically female, you should change your body to fit your mind. That's the world's way of making you happy. And out of that ideology has, become, has come the absolute tragedy that is things like gender reassignment surgery. The world is, by the way, at the forefront of that thought and that practice is already walking it back. The Tavistock Center, the largest practice of adolescent gender reassignment surgeries in the United Kingdom. They shut down this year. They're actually saying they're going to stay open through beginning of 24, but the funding is gone. And the reason was because the type of care it provided, their own words, was actually not safe or viable as a long-term option for young people experiencing gender-related stress. And they were being sued time and time again as adults came back and said, man, you aided me in making a permanent decision based on a temporary feeling. Dr. Paul McHugh, the psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins back when they pioneered gender reassignment surgery, they've since shut it down, concluded, to provide a surgical alteration to the body of these unfortunate people was to collaborate with a disorder of the mind rather than to treat it. In other words, the idea of treating the body instead of the mind is the wrong treatment, and we know this in other areas of medicine, right? I mean, again, I'm, before I even get down again into the word, if a 90-pound, 5'5 woman walks into a doctor's office and says, 
I feel obese. What does a caring doctor do? Does a caring doctor say, okay, well, we want to treat the body to bring it into alignment with your mind. That means prescribing things for an obese person, maybe even diet pills and stuff like that. Would a caring doctor do that? Of course not. The doctor instead concludes something's wrong in the mind and seeks to treat the mind to help bring it into reality with the current condition of the body. And then the body and healing follows. I want to show you what God says. Instead of bringing your body in alignment with your mind, allow God to transform your mind to come into alignment with the body he gave you. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, and please hear this. I feel like I want to pause just right here and remind you anything that we ever say here, we, one of our most chief values, actually our chief value is we keep the gospel at the center of all we do. That's because I believe scripture keeps the gospel at the center of its whole announcement and all of its prescriptions and everything else. And Paul says, in view of the mercies of God, he's saying, because of what Jesus did for you, because of his great love for you, because he went first for you in view of his mercy to save you from your sin. So please watch out in this kind of conversation. You could start to hear something that's not there. I want you to hear everything we're saying in the view of the mercies of God. He says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's your true worship. And then do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. So that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, I choose to submit my disordered mind Yes, even as a follower of Christ, mind and body still not fully unified. Mind and body still disordered by the effect of sin. I choose to submit it to the Lord day by day, surrender my mind to him and ask him, Lord, renew my mind through your Holy Spirit. And as he does that work, my life will be transformed. Okay, Pastor Spence, I see what that means for me, but what about for how I interact with the world around me? What about some of those situations you talked about earlier? Okay, here's our next point in our theology of gender. Christians are sent by God to speak and practice truth in love. So we kind of reorient back to what our purpose and calling is. Second Corinthians five says, God sends Christians out into the world to announce to the world, the hope of the gospel and plead, be reconciled to God. That's our calling. That's our chief priority. Be reconciled to God. We speak truth. We do so in love. We're not good people telling bad people how to behave We are redeemed people telling all people about the great love of Christ. So what does it mean practically? Well, practically it means you don't compromise truth, but you do stand in love. So you better lean heavily on the Holy Spirit to guide you. You Y'all, it also means we need to major on relationship building, especially here in our community. You know this, relationship will determine how you lovingly respond to someone. Relationship will determine the audience you have with someone. So if someone as close to me as my child comes to me with a name and pronoun change, I'm going to seek to lovingly explain why. Uh, Basically the things that I've shared with you, I'm not going to go along with that, but try and love them and walk them through what God says. Same for a friend or someone I have a relationship with. Same also in the public square of ideas. I'm not going to yield to a false ideology anywhere but I'm going to ask God for great guidance on how to speak truth and love. Because please remember there are ideologies and then there are people. 
Yes, people believe the ideologies, but they're people. And just as in all things, I'm going to let love guide me. I'm not going to make my whole encounter, my whole relationship with someone about their gender. That would just be doing the same thing the world is doing to them. My goal is to put Jesus first and gender second. I'm not going to expect non-Christians to live like Christians. I'm going to patiently and lovingly ask the Lord for the right time. And I'm going to talk about first about Christ. But basically that means if you and I get one conversation and it's up to me to set the agenda, we're not talking about your gender. We're talking about Jesus. He is of first importance. Now let me say one more thing here. Um, I didn't put this in the notes, but I'm compelled to say it, y'all. We have, must be a people of prayer. Do you think that your clever words are going to change hearts? Well, listen, maybe you're more clever than me, but I have come to know through a whole lot of words what scripture already says to be true. The Lord changes hearts. So let us be a people who pray and who weep like the Apostle Paul over the salvation of those that we love and know. We must be a people of prayer. This is what he calls us to, to be a people of prayer. This leads me to where I want to close. I want to offer some hope to those of you who may be down this road some way. Scripture speaks right to you. How good is our God to make his word so relevant and hope-giving? I want to go over to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, Really cool. Um, starts in verse 26. It says, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Okay, Philip's one of the apostles. Philip's got a good ministry going. People are coming to faith, getting healed. It's awesome. Got this thing going. An angel of the Lord speaks to Philip and says, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Go away from the ministry. Basically, go to the middle of the desert. And when he gets there, he goes up, he gets there, he went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem, was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. Okay, this Ethiopian man this eunuch, a eunuch is someone who had been castrated. He had had his genitalia cut off, most likely in some kind of ritual. Uh, men in a queen's court in that day would be common practice. We don't know for certain if this is why. Maybe it's not why, but most historians would say it's common practice. If you're a man and you're going to be serving in a queen's court, you had to be castrated. And so that's probably what is happening here. Regardless, he's had some kind of sex change surgery happen to him. Philip meets him and he's on his way back from Jerusalem where he had come to worship. Historians are kind of split on this. Maybe he was a Gentile who had heard about God and he's coming up 1,500 miles in a chariot that's going slow enough that Philip can walk up to it, okay? So it's not exactly speeding down the road, if you're thinking about some old Western movie or something like that, okay? Slow enough, so it's taken him a long time, 1,500 miles to get there. Maybe he's a Gentile or maybe because of the diaspora, maybe he's actually Jewish and he's coming to worship the God of his ancestors, okay? Either way, he's coming and he arrives and what we know is that his access is limited because Deuteronomy 23.1 made a restriction that prohibited someone like him from entering the assembly of the Lord. Some historians say there was even likely a sign over the temple. When he arrives, it says, no lame, no diseased, no blind, and no eunuchs may enter the temple. 
sign or not, he would have been barred admittance because of his scars. And I say that because if you're feeling like maybe you're not welcome in God's house because you've traveled down this road, I want you to listen to what happens. Philip goes up to this chariot. Eunuch is reading, this eunuch is reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit tells Philip, go and join that chariot. Philip ran up to it. He heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and he goes, wait, wait, because Philip's like, I know that. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? How will they hear unless they are sent? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Oh man, the scripture passage he was reading, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Catch who's reading this. Who will describe his generation for his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch says to Philip, who's the prophet saying this about himself or, or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. Tell him the good news of the gospel. Here's what's so powerful to me. Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus suffering for his people about being beaten and scarred and humiliated for the sins of his people. Philip tells him the good news about Jesus. And then, y'all, do you know what Isaiah says just a couple of chapters later? Chapter 56, I think this, if I had to project, that's all this is, but maybe this is why the Ethiopian eunuch is holding on to the prophet Isaiah as he's going home, why he may not have even put it down. Look at Isaiah 56, verse 3. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says, see that? You don't say who you are. For the Lord says, the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and who choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And what Philip comes along and says, that covenant, guess what? Christ has fulfilled it. So all you have to do is receive it. Receive the salvation God offers you in Christ. Receive this new identity, a name better than sons and daughters. What he's saying to this man is that this man's scars do not define him and this man's scars don't determine his future. The scars of Jesus define him and the scars of Jesus determine his future. And I wanna tell you the same offer is there for you. Your scars do not have to define you because God has said very clearly that the scars of Jesus can. He goes up on the cross and he dies. He is humiliated. He is beaten, marred, scorned. We sing about this. It is in our liturgy to draw ourselves back to the cross, our God wounded for us, for us to receive salvation from sin and to be welcomed into God's forever house. So listen to me here at Mercy. If you are transgender, we will not shame you. We will love you and we will tell you about the hope of Jesus. We believe what the psalmist said, that we are 
fearfully and wonderfully made, and I will praise him for it. If you're a woman, you are a woman fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, and we want to come alongside you and help you praise him for it. If you are a man, you are a man fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, and we want to come alongside you and help you praise him for it. But we're not going to shame you here. We will counsel you in love to bring your mind in alignment with your body and receive the identity God has spoken over you because you're not who you say you are. You're not who I say you are. You're not who the stereotypes of the world say that you are. You are only who God says you are. We'll just try and help you walk in that identity. God loves you. He loves you. We're not good people trying to tell bad people how to behave, how to fix themselves. We are redeemed people trying to tell all people about the hope and love of Jesus Christ. And it's available for you. Let me pray for you. All of our campuses, let's get into a posture of prayer. As I pray over you, maybe first I want to give you a chance to respond in prayer to whatever God may have brought to your heart and mind through this, this time together in his word. Maybe you just need to, to say yes to God. God, I believe that you set my identity, not me. That alone is a really big step of faith. God, I'm going to choose to believe what you say about me, not what anybody else says. You say that in Christ, I'm forgiven for my sin. You say in Christ, there's freedom. And I receive that. I repent of my sin. I give my life to you. Maybe you're a Christian and you're saying, Lord, again, I repent of my sin. I give my life to you. Maybe, maybe you need to come to the Lord in confession for where fear and anger towards this both ideology and maybe even towards people has defined your interaction here? You say, God, I, I confess. Would you give me a heart of compassion? Help me to be the aroma of Christ to a world broken and in need. You need to go back to the cross and say, thank you for forgiving a wretched sinner like me. What grace. Father, I pray for the person, man or woman who's sitting now trying to figure this out, wrestling, whose family dynamic has been totally disrupted or they're thinking about disrupting it or whatever else, pain has been felt. God, I pray that you would give just a real felt sense of your love now as the father of the prodigal son embraces the prodigal, I pray that men and women would experience that embrace now. Thank you for your hope. Thank you that we cannot, your grace doesn't have an age limit, doesn't have a sin limit. Keep coming back and find grace. So I pray that reveal where we have believed lies 
draw us to truth, but God, I know you'll do that in love and ask for us to be receptive of that love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ. We praise you in his mighty resurrected name. Amen.